We are up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 24. Shmuel HaKatan Omer. Shmuel HaKatan, the small Shmuel, says, Bin al tismach. At the fall of your enemy, do not rejoice. Uvikashlo al And when he stumbles, don't be joyous in your heart. Penyira Hashem. Because perhaps God will see. Virabeinav. And it will be displeasing in his eyes. Veheshiv me'alav apo. And he will turn back from him his wrath and redirect it to you. Now, this is an interesting Mishnah for several reasons, but one of them being that the entirety of the lesson of this Mishnah is a direct quote from Scripture from the book of Proverbs, chapter 24. This is the first time we've seen it, that a teaching in the Mishnah is actually a direct quote from the Scripture. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. So who was Shmuel HaKat? And who was Shmuel the small one, the diminutive one? So the Talmud gives two opinions as to why he was called Shmuel the small one. Either because he always humbled himself. He was a man of such great character that he would always lower himself, humble himself, and that became his nickname. Alternatively, the Talmud suggests that there is a major Shmuel, namely Samuel the prophet, and then there is a small, a minor Shmuel, this author of the Mishnah, Shmuel HaKatan, meaning that these two people in Jewish history, they live a thousand years apart from each other, but Samuel the prophet, one of the greatest prophets in our history, and this author of our Mishnah, Shmuel the small one, they're almost indistinguishable. And the only way we can distinguish them is that Shmuel, Samuel the prophet, was the big one. He was a little bit bigger, and Shmuel the small was a little bit smaller. But otherwise, they were indistinguishable. And this is a theme that we see in the Talmud's portrayal of this particular sage, that he was essentially a prophet. Even though he wasn't a prophet, but he was a prophet in every way besides for actually having prophets. He had lower levels of prophecy. He would have had prophecy had his generation been worthy of it. And he was almost the same as the great prophet Samuel. Now, the Kabbalists tell us that he was a spark or his soul had a spark of Moses in it. What this means is that we have this idea of reincarnation, that the soul comes back in a different persona. But there's also the idea of a certain spark of a soul that is absorbed by a second soul. And according to the Kabbalists, in every generation, there is someone who has a spark, has a scintilla of Moses in him. And again, according to the Kabbalists, and how they know this is a question you have to ask them, this Shmuel HaKatan, this Shmuel the small one, had a spark, bore a spark of Moses. Now, there are very few teachings of his that are preserved in the Talmud Mishnah, and most of them relate to his relationship with Rabban Gamliel. Now, the scholars disagree as to which Rabban Gamliel was a contemporary of Shmuel HaKatan. The problem was there are two Rabban Gamliels. Hillel has a son, Shimon, has a son, Gamliel, 
He has a son Shimon. He has a son Gamliel, and he has a son Shimon. So there's three Shimons and two Gamliels in this line. And later on, there's also another another Shimon as well. And the second Rabban Shimon Gamliel is the father of Rabbi Judah the Prince, and those are of course the heads of the Jewish people in the first and second century of the Common Era. So you have two sages, both of them called. Rabban Gamliel. And the way they are differentiated in Jewish literature is that one of them is called Rabban Gamliel Hazakain, Rabban Gamliel the Elder, and one of them is called Rabban Gamliel of Yavne. And that's the grandfather and the grandson. The problem is, is that with regards to Shmuel HaKatan, we're given so few stories about him and we know that he's involved with a Rabban Gamliel, but we don't know which one. So there's a dispute. Some of the sages say that he was associated with Rabban Gamliel Hazak and Ramil the elder, the grandfather. And some that say he was related to Rabban Gamliel of Yavne, the grandson. The predominant opinion is that he was a student and confidant of Ramagamliel the Elder, but to confuse matters, he was actually in Yavne with the older Ramagamliel. And of course, the reason for this is, as we've mentioned in the past, the sages left Jerusalem before the temple was destroyed. And they coalesced in the city of Yavne. So therefore, even though the focus that we get in the Talmud in Yavne, is mostly after the destruction, but we know historically that they were there even before the destruction of the temple. Now, my favorite teaching regarding Shmuel HaKatan comes from the Talmud in Sanhedrin, page 11a, and this shows his gentle and caring character. Now, the background of this particular teaching is a particular law that states that whenever the Sanhedrin wants to convene and the subject that they want to discuss is adding a month to the calendar. We know that the Jewish calendar operates in a hybrid model. We have a lunar month and a solar year. And those two are kept compatible by us adding an extra month every two or three years. And that has to be done by the Sanhedrin. However, only judges who were designated ahead of time, only those people can participate in such a deliberation as to whether or not to add a month to the calendar. So the story goes that Rabban Gamliel sent a message to the academy, I need seven Sages, to come join me tomorrow to discuss this very important matter as to whether or not we're going to add a month, a second month of Adar this upcoming year. So the messenger goes and speaks to seven people and they are told that they are part of this team and to show up at Rabbi Gamliel's office the next morning. The next morning, Rabbi Gamliel arrives at his office and there are not seven sages there. There are eight sages there. So there's someone in the room that is not supposed to be there. So he makes an announcement. 
whoever is the person that was not invited, that was not designated ahead of time, please leave. So Shmuel Akatan is there. He gets up. And he announces, I am the one who came without permission. And I didn't come to participate in the deliberations. I came because I wanted to just follow the proceedings. So Gamil tells him, no, you, you sit. You we need. And we're told elsewhere that Shmuel Akatan was such an expert on astronomy. He understood the entire network of the stars and the moon, the galaxies and the constellations. He knew it all. He was a resident expert. They needed him for this deliberation. The Talmud tells us that, in fact, he was one of the seven people that were invited, that were designated ahead of time. But he didn't want to embarrass the real culprit. The real person who came illegally without permission was someone else. But in order to allow that other person to save face, he said it was me. And he covered for that person. And the Talmud actually goes on to give us a few other stories to this effect. It tells that one of the great sages was giving a lecture. And someone in the room had bad breath. He was eating lots of garlic. And there was a pervasive smell of garlic in the room. So the rabbi got a little bit annoyed and he makes the announcement, whoever had that garlic, leave, you're disrupting the lecture. So one of the great sages, Rabbi Chia, gets up and walks out. And everyone else gets up and they walk out. And the idea was the same kind of idea. Rabbi Chia was not the one who ate the garlic, but he wanted a cover for the person who did. And the Talmud gives a third story. It tells that there was a lecture given by Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir is someone that we've seen earlier in Perkevos. And Rabbi Meir is there with his whole academy. And a woman walks into the academy and makes an announcement. She says, I am married to someone in this room. Not only that, the marriage ceremony was done via intercourse. The Talmud tells us that there's various ways that a marriage can be effectuated. One of them is via intercourse. But the Talmud warns that that's prohibited to do, and if someone does that, even though technically it's okay, the court doesn't like it, the court punishes them. So this woman is saying to the group of sages, one of you is married to me, and the marriage was done in a very embarrassing way, very improper ways, shall we say. So Rabbi says, okay, let me write a divorce document to you. So he writes a divorce document as if he was the one who married her. And he delivers a document to the woman. And then everyone else gets up, writes a divorce document, and delivers it to the woman. Meaning, of course, Romero was not the perpetrator. But he's providing cover for the person to not be embarrassed, surrounded by their friends and colleagues, Everyone could write it in a way that the actual perpetrator is not exposed to everyone. And we're told in the books of proper Jewish conduct that whenever there is an accusation done to the public, say it was you. And that way, you could cover for the real perpetrator. You could allow them to save face. However, don't lie. 
Don't say, I did this and this thing. Say, I sinned. And everyone sinned in some way or another. And therefore, you cover both problems. You say, I sinned, and therefore, people could believe that you're the one who did this, and you're providing cover for the real perpetrator. But you didn't actually lie because you did sin because every human sins. The Talmud continues by giving us some other stories about Shmuel HaKatan. It tells us that even though prophecy ceased, the final prophets of the Jewish people were Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And once they passed, there was no longer full-fledged prophecy. However, they had lower levels of prophecy, like a baskol, a prophetic announcement, a prophetic voice that would emanate from heaven. And it tells us that there was once a collection of sages in Yavne, and they heard a prophetic voice. And the voice announced to the assembled group of sages, amongst y'all, there is someone who is worthy of being a prophet. Meaning if he was in a different generation, he would right away become a prophet. The problem is that the generation is not worthy of having a prophet in their midst. And all of them directed their attention at Shmuel HaKatan. They knew that there was a prophet in their midst and everyone kind of got a sense that if there's anyone amongst them that is worthy of such a great stature, it is Shmuel HaKatan. And then it tells us that he was actually capable of certain levels of prophecy when he was about to die. He prophesied of the destruction of the temple. He prophesied that the Nasi, the head of the Sanhedrin, and the high priest are going to be executed by the Romans, which indeed happened. They were assassinated by the Romans. And again, the Talmud gives credence to this idea that he wasn't quite a prophet. He wasn't like Samuel the Great. He was more like Samuel the Minor. He was a lower-level prophet, a prophet for his generation. Now, the most famous story about Shmuel HaKatan is featured in Brachos, page 28b. And it's talking about the 19th blessing of the Shmon Esra, of the Amidah prayer. The Amidah prayer is called Shmon Esra, which literally means 18. It's because there's 18 blessings. The problem is that there's not 18 blessings. There are 19 blessings. So how come there are 19 blessings and we call it the 18 blessings, the 18 benedictions? So Tama tells us that in Yavne, they made the 19th blessing and it was added at the behest of Rabbi Gamliel because there were so many heretics. The blessing of the heretics was added because there was an influx of heresy and heretics, and these heretics were causing so much trouble. Moreover, these people, these heretics, were disguising themselves as non-heretics, and therefore, as a way to force people to choose one side or the other, they made a blessing that cursed the heretics. A benediction, shall we say, of a malediction against the heretics. And who was commissioned to write it? Shmuel HaKatan, the author of our Mishnah, 
he was commissioned to write the 19th blessing, the malediction against the heretics. And what they would do is they would use this blessing as a way to weed out, to ferret out potential or suspecting heretics. People that we thought potential were heretics, we'd force them to go lead the services. And if they were too reticent, because they don't want to curse themselves, then we would know that there's something corrupt, something fishy going on here. Now, it's interesting. When the Talmud talks about the codification of the 18 blessings, it points out that the people who did it were all prophets. The men of the last of the prophets, the men of the great assembly. They had prophets because these blessings are rooted in prophecy. And the precise words of the 18 blessings are of prophetic origin. And therefore, you had to have someone who was a prophet to come up with the exact right wording. And now here we see that Shmuel HaKatan, we're told, he has some of the characteristics of prophets. He would have been a prophet in a different generation. He was a lower grade prophet in his generation. And thus it is no surprise that if we have to have someone to codify the 19th blessing, it's going to be him because he had a sense of what was really going on in the spiritual spheres. And the commentaries add that he had an insight into the heavenly realms and he knew what flaw, so to speak, the heritage had caused in heaven and therefore he was able to identify the underlying spiritual malady of the heretics and thus he could compose his prayer, that 19th blessing, to match up with what is actually going on in heaven with these heretics and with heresy. Now the Talmud tells us that sometime later, this blessing is already widely in use, and he himself, Shmuel HaKatan, is leading the services, and he forgets the blessing. And they say, okay, say the 19th blessing. And he's like, oh, oh no, I forgot the blessing. What was the exact text of the blessing? And they say to him, wait a minute, is this person potentially someone that is a heretic themselves? Because this is the classical approach of the heretics. Ah, the blessing, I don't know it. I forgot it. That's what you would say if you don't want to say it. But they say, no, someone like him, he himself, he composed the prayer. We have zero doubts that he went awry. So one more beautiful teaching from the Midrash that I want to share. I think it's also topical for the month of Elul that we just began. And the subject matter of this particular Midrash is a verse in Scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes, Koheles, that says that there is a righteous person who is destroyed in his righteousness and there is a wicked person who lives long in his wickedness. So it's not immediately clear what the verse is trying to tell us. So the students of Shmuel HaKaton 
they asked him, well, what's the meaning of this verse? What is this idea that there's a righteous person who's destroyed in his righteousness? Says Shmuel HaKatan, the Almighty sometimes knows that if there's a righteous person, eventually, at some point in the future, there is a risk that this person will spiritually flounder. And therefore, the Almighty sometimes in his righteousness, in his benevolence, will take the soul back of the righteous. I.e., the righteous is destroyed in his righteousness. In order to prevent him from becoming not righteous, the Almighty sometimes will take him away. The Almighty will usher him back to heaven ahead of his time in order to prevent him from becoming a wicked person. However, there's a wicked person who lasts a long time in his wickedness, says Shmuel HaKatan, so long as a person is alive, the Almighty is awaiting that person's repentance. Once someone dies, all hope is lost. Once someone is dead, once they've departed, they can no longer repent. And therefore, the Almighty is going to extend the wicked person Give him more and more time so he'll have time to repent. And then he gives the classic analogy of a band of bandits, thieves, that were all incarcerated in prison. And one of them dug a tunnel and escaped. And once the tunnel was there, all of them escaped besides for one guy. And when the warden, when he got a hold of what was going on, he fixed the hole and then he goes into the jail, goes into the prison and sees there's one felon that didn't escape. And he starts hitting him. You're a fool. You're an idiot. Everyone else was able to escape. And like an idiot, like a fool, you remained here. Says Shmuel Katan, that is repentance. The Almighty is telling us, you're sinners. You're criminals. You're incarcerated. But there's a tunnel. All you got to do is go through that tunnel and escape and become free people again. We're sinners and we're incarcerated in our own sin. But the Almighty prepared for us this tunnel for us to get out of our plight. And the Almighty is going to extend time to the wicked. You have more and more time so you could finally extricate yourself from the web of sin via repentance. There's a very appropriate teaching for the month of El. We know that during this month, we are supposed to try to prepare ourselves for the high holidays, for Yom Kippur, for Shoshanah. Repentance is the order of the day, and I think this is a very nice topical lesson from Shmuel HaKatan. Now, he quotes us a verse in Proverbs verbatim. And it's a little bit odd to have a teaching in the Mishnah, which is a direct quote of Scripture. What is the novel insight that Shmuel Katan is conveying? So the commentaries tell us that this was his maxim. This was his motto. He was always fond of saying this verse. And on a deeper level... He embodied this idea. When you see your enemy falling, there's a very 
a natural fiendish pleasure that we get when we see our adversaries suffer. Rabbi Yoda even tells us that this is something that we violate every day, or we tend to violate it all the time. Because there's such delightful pleasure when your enemies, when your adversaries are suffering. And the verse tells us not to behave like that. When you see your enemies falter, do not rejoice. And the commentaries explain, when someone rejoices in the faltering of their enemy, they're not acting in a way that's similar to God. When God punishes someone, that is intended to try to spur that person to change their ways, to re-examine their ways, to hopefully repent. God is always hoping for us to rectify our ways. In fact, one of the prayers that we say on the high holidays, God is not desirous in the death of the wicked. God wants the wicked to repent. When he makes us falter, when he makes us suffer, he's trying to nudge us towards repentance. God takes no pleasure in the downfall of the wicked. And therefore, when someone, a human, does take pleasure in the downfall of the wicked, they're acting in an ungodly way. Some of the commentaries quote the Talmud in the book of Megillah, page 10b. The Talmud's talking about what was happening in heaven when the sea was being split. So you have the Jews walking in dry land and the Egyptians being tormented by the sea. And the angels witnessed that. And they wanted, they were desirous to sing God's praise. And God says to them, my handiwork is being drowned and you want to sing praise? Is this the right time to sing praise? Now in our eyes, these Egyptians, they're thugs, they're criminals, they're murderers, they're terrible people. We should rejoice when they are faltering. But here we see that God's not like that. God doesn't want to exult in the downfall of the wicked. And therefore he says to the angels, okay, now it's time to pause from singing praise. I was thinking, you know, what's the landmark achievement of Shmuel HaKatan? His lasting legacy is something we say three times a day. Three times a day, we make a declaration against the heretics. We curse the heretics. And that's something that we still do today. And that is the handiwork of Shmuel HaKatan. So you perhaps may think that this is someone who really hates the heretics. And he wanted to see them suffering. And every time a heretic suffered, he got some pleasure out of it. That's what you may think. But here we see it's not like that. He did not exult at all in their downfall. And he would have loved to see them repent and rectify their ways. And someone like that, someone who loves the heretics and really wants to do the best for them, and really wants to see them improve and become better people, someone like that 
he's the right person to compose the curse of the heretics. When it's not personal at all, when someone's able to separate the sinner, so to speak, and the sin, when someone's able to focus just on what is going to emerge positively from this, and not someone who's a partisan, who hates the heretics and wants to see them suffer, someone like that is indeed worthy of pulling off this blessing and composing the exact proper words to curse the heretics that he doesn't want to see suffer. In the Midrash, he teaches us that God gives a long lifeline to the wicked. God wants them to repent. Whenever he saw the wicked, ostensibly his enemies, he saw them the way the Almighty saw them. He saw their potential for good. He saw their potential for repentance. I think that's the general idea. That we have to try to strive to become people who always see the good and the potential in others, even as we acknowledge that they are heritage worthy of being cursed. And that's the insight that someone who is essentially a prophet, like Shmuel Katan, can convey. It's very subtle. It's straddling essentially opposites. And he was the one who really embodied that. He was someone that we could say, we could quote a verse and say, he's someone who truly lived by this idea. When his enemies fell, he wasn't happy at all. Nevertheless, he understood how harmful and corrosive their influence could potentially be. And he, in fact, composed the prayer to curse them, but he still loved them and still hoped to see them rectify their ways. I think a fascinating insight of this wonderful character of Jewish history, Shmuel HaKatan, just one notch less than Shmuel the Big Shmuel, a great man of Jewish history who shows us that we have to try to adopt or to absorb and to live by two almost opposing ideals. On one hand, a complete and ferocious curse against the heretics. On the other hand, to never be happy when they fall and to always be hoping that they repent and rectify their ways. My email address is rabbiwalbajima.com. I always look forward to any questions, comments, or feedback. And please do not hesitate to email me.